0: We turn again to the second letter of Paul to Timothy. The first chapter, what I read in your hearing, and verses 9 and 10. God has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us In Christ Jesus, before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, what mighty words, aren't they? What a vision that stretches from before the beginning of time, to immortality, and in the middle of it, us. And we know with absolute certainty the identity of the us to whom Paul is referring in our text. The text, the word us, tells us that it refers to the people God has saved, the people God has called the people who have been given grace in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So we know that the us must refer to the people involved in this exchange of letters. Paul, the writer, and Timothy, the recipient. God had saved them, and God called them to live a holy life. In fact, we're told God's grace was given to them, before the foundation of the world. So the us refers to a very particular and a a very definitive constituency. It doesn't refer to Satan and the rebel angels. It doesn't refer to those who perished in Noah's flood. It doesn't refer to the emperor Nero. And then we could add that those pronouns we and us don't refer to Hitler They don't refer to the atheist and the unsaved and the unholy who reject the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But we all agree that these words, these pronouns, us and we refer to Paul and Timothy and surely then all those who embrace the truths and live the lives that Paul and Timothy embraced and lived. Such believers then are all saved, and are all called to live a holy life. So firstly, I want you to see what a Christian is. We're given a number of clues as to what a Christian is from our text. Firstly, a Christian is someone whom God has saved. It's a very simple phrase, isn't it? Four words, one syllable, God has saved us. And we pointed out recently how there are a number of men involved in saving professions, saving vocations. Firemen and lifeboat men and mountain rescue teams and lifeguards and helicopter rescue pilots, they save people from suffering and death. God saves people. What does he save us from? Well, God saved Paul and Timothy from sin, from the consequences of breaking the law of God. He saves men and women from the guilt of being lawbreakers and then from the power that sin exercises over us that makes some temptations quite overwhelming and almost irresistible. God saves us from that impotence and then also he saves us from the consequences of our sinning in that judgment always follows sin certainly and inevitably the wages of sin is death god will send in the bill for a life of rebellion and a life of indifference to him god saves us from all of that and he does so through his son jesus christ he does so through his living a blameless life keeping the law loving the law of god and then by taking the judgment upon himself that our sin deserves when as our substitute, he becomes the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. So a Christian is not someone whom God will save one day, but a Christian is someone whom God has saved. And then secondly, he tells us a Christian is someone whom God has called to live a holy life. That's what our text says. He has saved us and... and called us to live a holy life. Two actions of God, uh, they are inseparable, they are indivisible, they're not an either-or, they are both-and. The saving us and the calling us to live a holy life. You can't choose the second as an option to add if you are inclined. The first is indispensable, we must be saved. The second is indispensable too. If we are saved by God, we are summoned by God to live a blameless and a godlike life. So, holy living is not a suggestion from God, it's a call. It's an effectual call. If you go on living as you always lived before you profess to become a Christian, you are mistaken when you claim that you have been saved. The forger who says he's been saved by God, but Continues, his forgery is unsaved. The drunkard who claims he's been saved but goes on regularly getting drunk is unsaved. The thief who claims to have been saved but doesn't stop stealing is unsaved. The man who once ignored the Holy Bible and then professes to have been saved but soon indicates he has no desire to read Holy Scripture or hear Holy Scripture being preached is an unsaved man because the God who has saved us has also called every one of us to live a holy life. Paul might have heard a professing saved man suggesting that it was okay for him to go on sinning, because that would magnify the grace of God, and more forgiveness and more mercy would be shown to him. I'm simply giving God's grace plenty of scope, he might say. That is the devil's logic to argue like that. If you are justified by faith alone, you may live as you please. That's the devil's logic. You have a place reserved for you in heaven, so sin without compunction. And Paul's response to that is, God forbid, by no means. No way, Jose. Paul would, in effect, say. It's utterly unthinkable that a professing Christian save from the condemnation of, of the law through Jesus Christ bearing his condemnation on Golgotha in his place, not sparing him from that death, should subsequently go on, if he believes that, living for self, putting ego on the throne of his heart. Such sinning is making merchandise of Golgotha. Paul tells us that those who are saved are also called to a holy life. If a Christian is justified by faith in the finished work of Christ alone, he will demonstrate that faith by a life that's not merely moral, but a life that is positively holy. We are certainly justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies a sinner is never, never alone. It's always accompanied by a holy life and by good works that God has foreordained for us to do. They are not instrumental for our justification, but they are evidential and essential. The buzz phrase is, justification always leads to sanctification. McShane speaks on behalf of every Christian when he says, if Christ justifies you, he will sanctify you. He will not save you to abandon you, to your sinning. As Ryle said, no holiness, no heaven. So a Christian is someone who is saved and has been called to live a holy life. Secondly, why should God have saved us and called us to live a holy life? Why? Why should that have happened? And Paul again gives Timothy two answers to that question. First is Negative. It clears away some rubble and misunderstanding. And the second is positive. Firstly, it was not that we did something to deserve it. Verse 9. It's very clear, isn't it? Not my phrase. It's his phrase. Let's clear away the, that heresy. Uh, was it the fact that we were particularly good people that constrained God to save us? Did the father rub his hands with glee As he saw us and turned to his son and said to his son, Well, now here's a fine bloke and we must save him. He's worth saving. No. Was it the righteous and the noble and the rich and the influential and the beautiful and the really smart that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit picked on? We're going to have those, they'll be real assets to the kingdom of God. Never in a month of Sundays that was not at all how God has worked. God never bases His choice on what man thinks or what man says or what man does or what man is. We don't know what God has based His choices upon. But we do know that it's not on anything that's in man. And that's wonderful. Supposing... God had said he would save a person because that person had attained a certain high standard of morality, and then he'll save him. Or a great grasp of theology, or a huge mountaintop religious experience, or some glorious concept of the living God. Imagine if God had said, That'll be the basis on which I'll save you. Who, Who could be saved? Who here? in the pulpit, out of the pulpit, could be saved. What man could stand before God and claim that he had done one thing, one thing that was 100% absolutely perfect. It could bear the scrutiny of a holy, omniscient God. And God would evaluate it and God would say, 100% perfect. If God's salvation were dependent on one single perfect thing, a single action that we had done, something as holy as God Himself, something that reached the glory of God in what was done, no one could be saved, no one could get to heaven all will go to the place of woe. For none is righteous, no, not one. When God evaluates it, He doesn't take some sort of superficial examination of people. He looks at our hearts, looks at our motives, our imaginations, the God who knows everything about us. And God's final judgment upon us is that our righteousness are as used toilet paper. When we fallen, dirty specks of dust are set down in His presence. The presence of the God before whom the angels cover their eyes and sigh to one another, Holy. 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 He's light and there's no darkness in Him at all. Whereas we as... Drink iniquity, iniquity like water. We deserve nothing from God because of the sin of our father Adam and our own personal rebellions against him. What, what could we do? What could you achieve now? What test could you pass? The reward of which was the glories of heaven. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, that's reserved for you there. Complete forgiveness of all your sins Past sins, present sins, future sins. You become an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. Uh, You look forward to being with the Son of God and to be like him forever and ever. What test would you accept that you could pass in order for that to be given to you? Would a man give to the whole world And glory, this glory, be given to him in exchange. Well, we don't have the whole world to give. We have nothing. We have nothing to give to God, do we? Nothing that hasn't been touched by us. By ego. By sin. By pride. By failure. By incompetence. It's not because of something in our youth and childhood, as she sings in The Sound of Music. She must have done something good, and so she marries this dude because of what she did in her youth or childhood. It's not that. It's not a reward. Glorification is not a reward. It's an undeserved salvation. It wasn't earned by us. It wasn't merited by us. It wasn't bought by us. It was earned by Christ. It was merited by Christ. It was bought by Christ for us. So, negatively, it was not by anything that we did. It's there in the book. It's in front of you. Positively, why then did he save us and call us to a holy life, he tells us, because of his own purpose? That's what he says. Because of God's own purpose and grace. Some of you remember the catechism question. It's number seven in the, in the shorter catechism. What are the decrees of God? It asks and it answers... The decrees of God are his eternal purposes whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. His eternal purposes. God has made up his mind. He's going to do certain things. He's going to create a world. He's going to create a cosmos. And he's going to sustain that cosmos and everything is going to live and move and have its being in him. And so it certainly will happen. I will declare the decree, Psalm 2. If the Almighty has purposed that, well, he's not going to fail, isn't In his purposes. His purposes are the first things. His purposes are the ultimate things. In other words, we can go back behind our choice of God, to God's choice to save us. And we can go back behind God's choosing us, to God's purpose in choosing us. But you can't go behind God's loving purposes to anything more rational, to anything more basic. God's loving purpose is the ultimate it is the highest you can go it is the alpha it is the wellspring it is the source of everything that follows it turns the switch on the whole humming machinery of redemption according to his eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus Ephesians 3:11 there's nothing that has more priority than the purposes of God there's no archangel who comes up to him one day and he suggests that God should do something and God then changes his purposes in the beginning there was the purpose of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and that alone there's nothing more foundational I'm saying to you than the loving purpose of God it's there that we find everything that God has decreed he's going to create the world and so he says let there be light and there was light He spoke, it was done. We owe our existence. The very breaths we take day by day, our existence on this planet, in this solar system, in this galaxy, in this cosmos, to the purpose of God. We're here tonight because of the purpose of God. He's given me this word and you to hear this word for your comfort and your salvation. In the beginning, when there was nothing else, there was nothing. There was... Not space. There was nothing. There were no dimensions. There wasn't north, south, east, west. There wasn't a vacuum. There was just nothing whatsoever. And then there was God. There was just God. There was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he had a purpose. He had a purpose. He created everything. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then he purposed the fall of man. And then he purposed to send the Messiah to redeem the world and save all his people. And he did it that way because that most manifests his glory in sending the Messiah into a fallen world to save that world. Everything before us and above us and uh, beneath us and around us and inside and outside of us, it all goes back to the loving purposes of God. You look back through 2015, you see the purpose of God in 2015. And you look back many, many years. Some of you three score years and ten. You look back and you see, I can see the hand of God on me. I can see how Jesus led me all the way. The purposes of God. But when God determined to save us, more was needed than a fiat, a word. A word. From God, a command from God, more was needed. God could create by a word. Let there be light, and there's the universe. But to save us, grace was needed. Jesus Christ was needed. The incarnation was needed. The life of humility in this world was needed. The dying love of Jesus on the cross was needed. His death and His resurrection was needed and His ascension as the God-man to be seated at the right hand of God. All that was needed now. God's grace was needed to give us what we didn't deserve and what we could do nothing to get. Alright? Let me tell you this. Let me use this picture and you'll see it straight away, sin and grace are like the two carriages on the clifftop railway in Aberystwyth. You know how they work, those two carriages? There's one at the top and there is one at the bottom and there's a horse or there's a wire that goes all the way around. One wire which uh, attaches them both. And when the one is at the top, The other is at the bottom. And when that is at the top, the other is at the bottom. This one mighty strong cable joins them. What is at the top in your life? What's tops now? What's the utmost in your life? Is it you? Is it ego? Is it your sin? Is that, is that the top? Or is it the grace of God in Jesus Christ? When one is up, then the other is down. God's grace is His purpose and power in redeeming us. He didn't leave mankind in the state then which the fall had plunged them. He sent His Son. wouldn't spare His Son. He became the Lamb of God. Take away our sin. He would become incarnate. He would live in a fallen world. He would grow old prematurely under the enormous pressures that his bumbling disciples and his suspicious family and his hostile enemies would bring to him every day. He would suffer physically. He would suffer psychologically. He would suffer socially. He would suffer spiritually he would bear the judgments of men upon him false accusations interrogations beatings lashings crucifixion death he would bear the judgment of God for our guilt for the things I did yesterday and last year and he would bear the pain and shame and blame for them willingly by his life and by his death. Because he loved me. And he was determined to take me to himself, that where he was, I would be. And he would change me and welcome me and I would be like him forevermore. The third thing that we find in this magnificent session is the time that God purposed to focus his saving grace on us. When he decided to do all this, And this is what Paul says. Look at our text. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It's not when we made a decision. Not then that God gave us grace. In fact, it was before the beginning of time. That is, before the first tick of the clock. When there were no clocks. When there was nothing. No vacuum, no space, no dimensions. Absolute nothingness in that nihilum. God purpose to save us. We're a favored people, aren't we? That's what Paul is saying here. And let me ask you this question before the earth's foundations were laid, did God have foreknowledge? In other words, did the God who is from eternity to eternity know everything that was going to happen? Was he in the dark about the future? About what he would do if he created man and gave man free will? And allow Satan to enter the garden. Did God know what was going to happen? Did God know the consequences of sin? Of your sin? Of the sin of the world? Did God have foreknowledge? Of all this? Well of course he did. He wasn't ignorant. God knows everything past. Everything present and everything future. So when God was looking ahead then before he created everything, when it was a purpose in his mind to create when he looked at the 21st century and the people who would be living today what did he see? When God could look ahead from then and look at 2016 and the people who lived on this planet in 2016. What did he see? Romans 3 10, 11, and 12. This is what God saw. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not one. So God looked ahead. He didn't see people, anyone with his free will, choosing Jesus Christ and living a holy life by his free will. He didn't. There wasn't one who was doing it. There was no one seeking God. But long ago then, what did God purpose? Before the beginning of time, before the creation of the world, God focused His saving grace on a multitude of people, more than any man can number. Like the sands on the seashore. He loved them. Every one of them. He delighted in them. All of them without God, All of them against God, yet He chose them. He purposed, I'll have them. He determined to forgive all their sins. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It's there in the book in front of you. There were two women talking to their pastor one Sunday night after he'd been preaching. A message, they didn't come together. He talked to them. He happened to meet them both. And he was preaching on a passage just like this passage that I'm preaching on to you. And the first Christian woman, she had a problem with the teaching that she'd just heard from him that God had purposed to save her before the foundation of the world. She talked about it to her pastor. He gently asked her, well, are you saved, Mary? Mary? Yes, yes, I believe I am saved. Who saved you? He asked. Did you save yourself? Or did God save you? I reckon it was God who saved me, she says. Did he do it on purpose? Or was it an accident? I reckon he must have done it on purpose. (laughs) She said, well, that's what Paul is writing about here. That's what he's telling us in this passage. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in election. Woman saw it. She was satisfied with what he told her. The second woman who talked to him later on was quite different. She had no problem with God purposing to save her before the beginning of time. She smiled at her pastor and thanked him for the message and she said to him, if God had not chosen me from before the foundation of the world, he never would have saved me when he looked at my life because I've been such a bad woman. Thank God he chose me before the foundation of the world. The Lord knew all about a much married woman in Sacherh In Samaria, before the beginning of time, he knew about her and he saved her. He knew about Mary Magdalene, who was possessed with seven demons. Before the beginning of time, he purposed to save her. And isn't every Christian mighty glad that God knew all about them, even before God said, let there be light. And in his grace and in his wonderful saving mercy, he purposed to save us. All of us, this vast company, of us. how could he do it well you see before the worlds were made there was one who wasn't made and it was Jesus in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God he was the great reality in heaven he was there with God God the Father and God the Son equal in their glory and in their power and the son possessing all the functions and the attributes of a deity and the father had given to him son look after these people for me I've chosen them I've loved them I give them to you now go and save them oh I'd love to Jesus said to his father and in that donation of grace of worthless, trashy people like ourselves, God the Father gave us to God the Son. And he came into the world for us, and he came to seek us, and he came to save us. And he lived for us, and he died for us, and he rose for us. And now he prays for us at the right hand of God. We're on his heart, and will be forever and ever and ever, world without end. We've been joined to him forever and ever. That's why we're saved tonight. Because Christ was there when God chose us. And that's why we live different lives. It was because of all he was and all he does as the God-man. God was saying, I'll give you the woman of Samaria. I'll give you Mary Magdalene. I'll give you David. I'll give you drunken Noah and lying Abram and cruel Saul of Tarsus, I'll give them to you. You save them. You save them from the consequences of their sin. <clears throat> In 1969, at the famous uh, Keswick Convention, the late John Stott gave four morning Bible readings on this epistle, Second Timothy. I'd love to have been there, to have heard him. But I have the book of all his Bible readings And this is what he said about this text that I'm speaking to you about tonight, this important text. He says, It's plain, therefore, that our salvation is not due to any merit or good works of our own because God gave us His purpose of grace in Christ before we did any good works, before we were born, or could do any good works, indeed, before history, before time, And in eternity. What do we have in this passage? So far we have five answers to five common questions. Did we save ourselves? Or did God save us? First answer. God saved us. Secondly. Was it we who first made the decision to live a holy life? Or did God in eternity first make that decision? Second answer. God did. Thirdly. Was, it, was any of this because of something we'd done? The answer, it was not because of anything that we had done, but because of God's purpose and grace. For three. when did this saving grace fall upon us? At the beginning of time, God knew us. God knew all about us. God knew our lives. And God loved us then. Fifthly, on what basis did God purpose To save us and change us. Was it that we were decent, respectable, bourgeois people? No. It was based on us being united to Jesus Christ. God the Father giving us to God the Son. And God the Son having us on his heart forever and evermore. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That great long sentence in Ephesians 1. Okay, we move on. Two more points. My fourth point is this. When did the world see this salvation of grace? Well, the world saw it when there were shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord came before them and uh, the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they are so afraid. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid because today is born to you in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And you go and see. And it was revealed to shepherds. Before that, it had been revealed to Mary and revealed to Joseph. It was a revelation from God. They saw this Savior. He had come into the world. To the Magi, it was a star, a peculiar star. And they saw it and they followed it and they knew a king has been born in the west and they came from the east. And they found the Lord Jesus. Jesus born of a woman. Announced by his herald, John the Baptist. The Lamb of God, he was going to appear. Before his birth, no eye had seen him, no ear had heard him. It had not entered into the heart of man such magnificent glory that there should be uh, two natures, a divine and human absolutely perfect united in one person forevermore it was hidden from the prophets they didn't know that such magnificence was going to come his name will be wonderful counsel of the mighty god the everlasting father the prince of peace and he came he came the promised one the one who was to bruise the head of the serpent he came the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He came. What memorable words. There was a preacher once, a hundred years ago, James Allen Francis. He said these things, you've heard them, I'm sure. He's talking of our Jesus. You want to hear about your Jesus tonight? Let me tell you about him using his words. He was born in an obscure village. Child of a peasant woman. Worked into a carpenter's shop till he was 30. For three years, he was an itinerant preacher, never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family, never owned a house, never went to college, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born, never did one of the things that people call great, no credentials, but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion, turned against him. His followers ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two criminals. And when he was dead, he was buried in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today he stands as the central figure of the human race. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever sailed and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as that solitary life has affected this planet. Four men carefully wrote Gospels In which they tell us about him. His teaching. His debates. His attitude to children and to women. And to soldiers and his own disciples. They tell us of his claims. They tell us that he said he was the way and the truth and the life. That before Abram was, he was. That he was the resurrection and the life. That he and his father were one. Peter was one of the eyewitnesses that saw him from his baptism to his ascension into heaven. More than 500 people were present at his resurrection appearances and he took time with them. Like he always took time with people speaking and caring and talking and listening and answering their questions. Many lived for decades afterwards and they would tell people, tell me what happened when you saw Jesus. Alive from the dead. Oh, it was wonderful. And he never grew weary of telling you of the wonders of Jesus Christ. What's ultimate reality? Is it our death? Or is it the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount? I'm always asking you that question. It's Him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He came not to be served by us, but to serve us. He came. The eternal God came to serve us. Why did he come to serve me? To serve you. That's why he came. He knew his mission was to be the Lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world. When he set his face to Calvary, nothing was going to change him because his father had given him us and he wanted to save us because he loved us so much. His best friends... Uh, sought to dissuade him. Because, well, your teaching is so wonderful. Think of what an influence you'll have as a teacher. Your power. Think of all the people you'll heal if you stay in this world. Don't give your life up in a gesture. That's what they thought he was going to do. Get thee behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. He must go. He must suffer. He must be nailed. He must taste death. He must rise the third day. That's why. Paul tells the Ephesians, Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present to himself a radiant church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. That's why he died. That's why he went to the cross. That you should be holy blameless that's the grace it's come it's been revealed veiled in flesh the Godhead see hail the incarnate deity he's the one who is the double cure of sin he cleanses us from its guilt and shame and he cleanses us delivers us from its power over our lives to do the unthinkable things that we attempted to do Look to this Jesus. That's what I want to talk to you always about, about Jesus Christ. We're not very smart people. We're not rich people. We're not beautiful people. We're very ordinary people. We have nothing to offer you except Jesus Christ, a teacher who will tell you what life is all about and how to be saved, the Lamb of God whose blood can cleanse you from your sin, and a wonderful protecting Lord and King will guide you and keep you as he has through 2015 and he will through this year. That's all we have to offer you, this Savior, Jesus Christ. The last thing I want to say to you is that this Jesus Christ has destroyed death and he's brought to life light life and immortality. Alright, that's the last thing that he says here. He saved us and he called us to a holy life. He saved us and he called us to a holy life. Isn't that good news? That he saved you and he called you to live a different life. A strong life, a good life, a wise life, a loving life. He did that. That's good news. He did more than that. He destroyed death. And he brought to life life, light and immortality. Now the man, do you know the man who's writing these words about destroying death? he's in prison, he's in a stinking cell, there's a little gap in the roof, and the light comes through for a few hours every day, and then it's darkness for 18 hours, and there's the rustling of the rats, and the vermin, and the cockroaches, and it stinks, and any day the door might open, and three soldiers come in, and each one will grab an arm, and the other will take a short bladed sword, and they'll give him a humane death, they'll thrust the uh, a sword up through his solar plexus and into his heart and that's it and he knows it's going to happen and he writes this letter days before that event and he says uh, he destroyed death and he's brought life and immortality to light we talk about death and the world doesn't, the world doesn't is nervous about it little jokes um, that it won't be around when death comes and so on like that. We talk about it. We sing about it forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be, we say. So let it be. Yes. So here's a great sweep of history. Can you see it? This sweep of history I've brought to you tonight. I went back to the beginning when there was nothing. Before the foundation of the world, there was nothing. There was God then. And you were on his heart. There were never a time when you weren't on his heart. When he loved you and determined he would save you and put you in a oh, better world than this world, a cleansed world, a, a world where righteousness is in every drop of, of rain and every atom. The righteousness of Christ will fill the whole of the universe. That's the wonder of it. He hasn't uh, annihilated death, has he? Because all the people around you are dead in trespasses and sins. And all the people around you and us, we're going to face a certain death. And many of the people around you, if they continue to reject the gospel, they're going to face the second death, the place of war that lies before them. So, I'm not saying that Christ's coming has eliminated death but I'm saying to you that here is someone more powerful than death here is someone who won't allow death to have the last word as far as you are concerned and as far as I'm concerned that's the good news that I've got to tell you tonight that Christ has met death on Golgotha it's done its worse against him on the third day he rose again he opened his eyes and he came out in the power of an endless life death could not keep its prey jesus my savior he broke the bars away jesus my lord up from the grave heroes what paul is saying that the invincible power that death had to take its victims and swallow them up and keep them forever he opens the jaws of death and he rescues us. He delivers us. He's more powerful than death. And so we taunt, we taunt death. O oh, death, where is your power? O oh, grave, where is your sting? My Lord is mightier than you. Because he lives, we shall live also. He's the first fruits of them that sleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, death is compared to a scorpion who has lost its sting. And now he tries to stab you and sting you, but he's blunt. There's no point at all. He doesn't hurt you at all. It's impotent. So the bragging tyranny of death is ended. In the death of Christ, there is the death of death. Life and immortality have been brought to light. To die is gain. To die is better. To die is good in Christ. Because those who die, they don't miss us for a moment. They're with Jesus. They're in the glories of heaven. They're enjoying then all the fellowship with Him and His apostles and angels. And they are dear ones who've gone before. And we'll join them if we are in Christ. We'll join them too. And it won't be long for some of us. And that's where we'll be forevermore. It's falling asleep in Jesus. We walk with him in this world. We walked with him through 2015 and we're going to walk with him through 2016 too. And even when we get to the end, the last day, and we start to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we won't fear any evil because he'll be with us then. He'll be comforting us. If you're not a Christian, you can't say these things. You've got no such hope. For you, it's the title of uh, a famous play of the 20th century, A Long Day's Journey Into Night. That's it. What despair. But for the Christian, it's the very opposite. It's a, a brief and uncertain life. And it leads to glory and hope. A short day's journey into light. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well now, at Christmas you were given gifts, weren't you? There was a nice parcel that was given and it was wrapped up and somebody shyly gave it to you. Did you say... Did you look down your nose at it and reject it? The gift that someone gave to you? A gift they bought for you? Wouldn't that be an awful thing for you to do? Not to say, oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the gift you gave me. God so loved the world, he gave. God so loved the world, he gave. He gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved to all who took the gift to all who received him he gave the authority to be the children of God to look into God's great face and say thank you for setting your love upon me before the foundation of the world thank you for showing me Jesus in time Thank you for keeping me until tonight and reminding me again that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever sailed and all the king's decisions and the parliaments and the words and words and words of men have never achieved what you've achieved for me and millions like me. And we'll go on achieving until we see you. But a Blessing to be a mere believer in Jesus. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now, we pray, and show us the wonder of salvation, which stretches from before the beginning of time to immortality. And enable everyone here then to fall before you and give their lives to you and serve you forever and ever.